so sorry. I don't oh, know no what worries, happened. No worries, no worries. You were bored. You're like, this is fucking boring. This girl's annoying. (laughs) Oh, you heard the word ScoMo and you're like, hang up. We're not talking about him. A listener production. Here at Listener, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. It's a lot, isn't it? Hey everyone, back for another episode of It's a Lot. And today's episode is a very important one and very I'm very excited about this. We are talking to Thomas Mayer. He is the National Indigenous Officer for the Maritime Union of Australia. He's also an author. He is um, an absolute amazing advocate for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And I'm so excited to speak to him. Hello, Thomas. Thank you so much for your time. Hello, Abby. Happy to be here with you. I am going to ask so many questions about this. So some of you listening may have heard about the Uluru Statement. I have been following the Instagram account for a while. I've understood basically what it is, but I was really excited to speak to you to get a deeper understanding of what it is, why it's needed, and everything in between. So let's just start off with basically... What does the Uluru Statement involve? So the Uluru Statement is a First Nations uh, statement, basically. But what's unique about this is that it's coming from a consensus of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from all around the country. You know, they went through a process of of regional dialogues, you know, discussing things in their communities. Uh, They all elected delegates that came together for one final big meeting a three-day convention, constitutional convention, we call it, in the heart of the country, yeah, at the, the, the wonderful, you know, and magical place in the heart of the country, Uluru. And it was there that the Uluru Statement was crafted. It was based on all of the lessons from the past. And it calls for, the, for three quite simple things, really. It, it says, firstly, that we want to have a voice, you know, that we want to be heard in all decision-making in this country. Secondly, that we want truth-telling to the nation. And, and lastly, the culminating agenda is the um, is treatments, you know, uh, uh, what we call makarata, which is the Yolnu word for coming together after a struggle. Mm-hmm. Can, so can you give me an example, like tangible examples of how, how all those three requests would actually look? Because I think that's the biggest question um, that I've had so that people can understand how they can help to reach those tangible outcomes. Yeah, well, I think um, just just before I go to that, I should talk about what the Uru statement also looks like uh, physically. You know, it's yes. So when when we reached this consensus, you know, because there was a lot of debate and tension, and mm. you know, like we were we were almost three hundred people in the heart of the country at Uluru trying to agree on on what we wanted to say to all of Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a really important uh, discussion. But when we finally reached a consensus on the on the third uh, and final morning of the convention, we all lined up, you know, so there was about 270 of us, you know, around 20 didn't agree, which is normal in politics, right? It's normal for any group of people, yeah. um, you know, a large group of people not to all agree. But a great majority of us then lined up and we signed this blank canvas we all put our names and, you know, a lot of us put what First Nation we're from. And then later on, these Anangu law women, uh, you know, so these, these leaders of the Anangu people in the, in the, you know, around Uluru, they painted this beautiful artwork around it. And then in the centre, 
in the middle of our names and that artwork is printed the Uluru statement from the heart, the words that we endorsed that morning. And it's a really, I encourage the listeners to, to have to check it out, you know, this beautiful yeah. and sacred document. The importance of what it calls for is that I think it's important for listeners to understand that we've, we've established many First Nations voices in the past. And when I say voice, I want the listener to understand that I'm talking about simply a representative body. Um, you know, so in the introduction, Abby, you said I'm from the Maritime Union. Uh, a union is a representative body. Mm-hmm. It represents workers in the maritime industry, my union. Other unions like MIA represent, uh, you know, entertainment workers. But Parliament in it itself in this country is a representative body for Australia, right? So you have business associations that are representative bodies. So when we say voice, that's what we're saying. We, we just want uh, a representative body that will be mm-hmm. heard by the decision makers in this country. So we've established these voices a lot of times in the past 1920s. There was the AAPA, Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. On and on it went. I'm not going to do a full history lesson here, but we've established representative bodies. But every time we have, they've been destroyed by a hostile government. So as soon as First Nations people have built the power through a strong representative body to say, hang on, you should be held accountable for the cruelty and and the poor decisions that you're making about us. They've just silenced that. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that we're calling for is a voice, but it's a constitutionally enshrined voice. And the constitution is just the rule book of the nation. It's the most important laws of the land. Uh, it can only be changed by the Australian people. The politicians must adhere to it. You might remember section 44 and politicians losing their jobs a few years ago. They had a dual citizenship Some of them. Oh, yes. That? Okay. And- yeah. yeah, and they didn't They didn't know that they had a dual citizenship, some of them, and, and they lost their jobs. They actually got kicked out of parliament. That's because the constitution said that the rule is you can't have a dual citizenship. So right. it's a really powerful document. And so the point that I'm making is, is that we're saying we want a representative body, a voice that's enshrined in the constitution so that hostile governments can no longer silence us and then we can hold them to account. Can I ask something? That's probably... Can I interject and ask, ask again a, probably a silly question? Mm. So in previous, when there have been previous bodies that have gotten close to or closer to having an actual say and having actual change happen in any capacity, what have those hostile governments done? Have they purposefully disbanded mm. them? Have they just purposefully ignored them or discredited them? What's actually... What is like the risk for these bodies? That's a brilliant question, Abby, because I could give the examples. Uh, the one that I mentioned in the 1920s was actually established by an Indigenous war. Fred Maynard was his name. But the way they, they silenced that one was back in them days, the government had so much control over Indigenous people. It was basically there were what we call protection acts in all of the states and territories. And the protection acts were quite the opposite of protection. Mm. Because they they gave a protection board uh, the control over who we marry, where we lived. They get put on curfew. So, if you're in some in a lot of cities and towns around the country, there's boundary streets. And so, if you see a boundary street, that's actually the you know that was the old boundaries where Indigenous people had to be out of that area. People don't 
At certain people don't realise that. Yeah. I tell my friends when we're on a boundary street, I'm like, isn't it awful that it's still called boundary street? Yeah. And people don't realise that. Did you know that, Lem? Because Lem isn't from no, Australia. I didn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like growing up, my grandma always said, remember how awful it is. This is why it's called boundary. People don't wow. even realise things like that. Your grandma was a great woman then. Yeah, she knew yes, that her history and taught the next generation. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, they also could steal our children, you know, the stolen generations. They could direct mm-hmm. us to work without pay, you know, all these horrible things. So they used those powers for that particular voice mm-hmm. to intimidate the leaders, you know, Fred Maynard, until until that voice was silenced, you know, it disappeared and was too hard. So there was a group of, a body of people and then the Protection Acts came in and that was what silenced them because they were, they were kind of like under the thumb even more so because they made a slight bit of progression so then the government, the hostile governments then said, no, well, you can't even, you know, be out past a certain, you can't go past yeah. Boundary Street, you can't. They you used, know, we're going to... They used those powers to intimidate the so threaten to steal their children, threaten to, you know, move them, you know, exile them and all that sort of stuff. And the most recent one, probably, you know, that, that some people would still be familiar with is, is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Uh, that was established under Bulk Hall's um, it came from the Barunga statement, so a similar statement to the Uluru statement mm-hmm. that, that, you know, had artwork and it said, these are the things that we want. Bob Hawke made some promises. He promised a national treaty, you know, failed to deliver on that. But he promised a voice and ATSIC was established. But John Howard was the Prime Minister back then and he opposed the establishment of this. As soon as John Howard got into, into power, he went about destroying ATSIC. So... With that one, all it was, because it was established by legislation, the parliament just delegislated it, basically. They repealed the legislation. So with a stroke of a pen, they silenced it. So we've learnt the lessons, Indigenous people, from all of that. And so we're saying, this time we want the Australian people to establish this voice in the constitution so that people like John Howard can't silence it. So it isn't based on a political leader, it's based on Australian people. Is that, does yeah, that require a referendum? Right. Yes, yes. It okay. uh, will require a referendum. Very difficult in this country. That's why we need to, you know, that's why this podcast is so important. That's why, you know, young people learning about this is important. Organisations supporting it is important because uh, we know as Indigenous people that this is the only way for us to move forward mm-hmm. is to establish the, the political power to speak for ourselves. And it's a fair thing in a, in a nation that is a, it's a democracy, you know, it's a representative democracy. Mm-hmm. And we, we think that um, we're very confident that the Australian people will vote yes in a referendum to do this. You'd really, really hope so. I, the question that I was going to ask you at the end, but I think I'm just going to ask it now is, and this, again, could be really obvious, but why do politicians keep preventing this from happening? It's a really simple thing. They just don't want to be held to account. So yes. when you consider in Australia that, uh, and the Uluru Statement points this out, that proportionately we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. So if that, that is uh, a truth. That's a fact-checked thing that proportionately Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country are more incarcerated than any peoples in the world. Mm -hmm. Also, our life expectancy as Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous is around eight years difference. You know, the employment and education outcomes are are far less than for non-Indigenous people. And the 
when you read your statement, there's a very important section that basically says, if we're the most incarcerated people on the planet, you need to understand, and it says it much eloquently than this, but you need to understand that we are not an innately criminal people, meaning we're not born criminals. My children, because they're Indigenous, are not less likely to understand right from wrong. There's a systemic and political problem here. If this is the case, then I think people should be, Australian people want to change that. We're ashamed of that. Absolutely. Uh, I think most Australian people are ashamed of that. And um, that's why they'll vote yes in a referendum. Absolutely. Yeah. I, it, so it comes down to, because obviously I think my knee-jerk reaction is, well, Australia is a racist country. It always has been. There isn't, I mean, I still think a lot of Australians are very racist, whether that's overtly or subconsciously because of the way we are brought up and because of the way this country was invaded and the way that it was established in such a disgusting way. So then my knee-jerk reaction is, well, it's because our politicians are racist. But there has to be an actual tangible reason why they wouldn't want this to happen because, sorry, I'm just trying to like get my, my thoughts out. Because I was thinking on the drive here, I was like, well, but then they'd want to look not racist even if they are, even if they do have issues with Indigenous populations, but it is because their power could be threatened because they wouldn't want to do what the body would require. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It it reminds me where I was going before before I got lost. But basically, they don't want to be held to account. Yes. It's the very simple answer that they don't want a voice that's strong enough to, to challenge the poor decisions that they make and seek to hold them to account. Um, it's such an important thing, though, that they are held to account. Otherwise, they'll continue to make the mistakes policy-wise and, uh, you know, the way they make legislation. Uh, that that leads to those statistics that I mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah, because it is systemic. It's systemic issues. Yes, that they're not about us as a people. They, they are actually poor political decisions. Absolutely. So you spent 18 months travelling around Australia to get support for the Uluru Statement. What was that like and was there pushback from people? So um, 18 months was with the original canvas, but I, I've continued to travel around for five years, still do today. But for 18 months, I was entrusted with the Uluru Statement canvas, that sacred document that I talked about. I saw it was at the Gama Festival, which is on Yolnu country. It's an annual festival there near Nolomboy. And I saw the Uluru Statement for the first time because it took some time to be, you know, painted and and for the printing to happen. And when I first saw it there at, at Gama, I just saw how powerful this document was to look at, you know, not only the words that we came up with. Uh, so I said to the elders, you know, I asked the elders, uh, can I take this around the country and start to build the people's movement? Because it's a powerful tool. And, um, and that's how I started that journey. There was all sorts of reactions. You know, there was a lot of misinformation about the Uluru Statement by for example, Barnaby Joyce and Malcolm Turnbull almost immediately said that this is going to be a third chamber of parliament, which means basically that the voice, the rep body would have too much power and it could veto legislation. That's not what we're calling for because we know... That's what I had in my notes. I was like, yeah. thoughts on Barnaby Joyce's silly <laughs> comments. Yeah, so he was wrong and Turnbull was wrong. That's not what we're seeking. The voice that we're seeking is actually, it would be advisory to parliament. But that doesn't mean that it's weak. It's the strength in it is the collectivism of it, you know, the unity that we would have because of it, the guarantee that we'd have to speak for ourselves and the accountability of our own leaders. But uh, they said that, and and that was misinformation, that was scaremongering, basically, because they know Australians don't want to give us that much power right now. 
Mm. Of course, we would love that much power, but um, it's not going to happen. Uh, See, it's funny that, that that is fear-mongering to say that the people who have always owned this land would have any say, like even a third of the say. It's so it's yeah. so interesting mm. that that would be so fearful that that's, that's going to get people to want to not even look at the, the Uluru Statement. Yeah, well, this sort of fear-mongering was used back in when Mabo, when, you know, when the Mabo case was successful in the High Court and the native title discussions were going on, they were... They were threatening that Aboriginal people would veto legislation. They were threatening that would steal, you know, that we would take their backyards. Mm. Um, so it's it's a normal tactic from those that don't want to see change. It's very funny to say, oh, well, First Nations people will veto legislation. Why? Would Like, this is the thing, unless the reason why they would would be because it was going to harm Indigenous people. Spot on. So don't we want to ensure that we have people who are understanding first-hand First Nations issues, vetoing legislation that will be dangerous. Isn't that, isn't that, I'd be like, yes. Isn't yeah. that a positive thing? Why is that a scare? <laughs> and we all know why, because of the racist history of the country. So, sorry, I just, it just, it makes me just genuinely confused why it would be an issue even that First Nations people could veto legislation. Because you, it, whoever was the body, they wouldn't be like, this will be fun. Let's stop. Let's yeah. because also at the end of the day, First Nations people. Are, if it was, for example, they're saying, you know, oh, this would be good for the economy. Yeah. First Nations people are involved in the economy in this country. They are not a whole different group. They are involved in our population. Well, so yeah, the, why would they want the to resources do are ours? Hard? Really, exactly. Like, you know, <laughs> the resources are ours in the first place. So uh, why would you want to do it, something it, to it, harm the country when it's your uh, country? Yeah, like most young people get this, right? Like young people these days, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what gives us so much hope. You know, we we know that a great majority of Australians understand this now. They know the truth. We don't need to do any new truth-telling or anything. I mean, it's a continuing exercise and it's important. But people are ready to, to make this structural change. Mm. Um, there, was, there was that misinformation about the third chamber, but, you know, all sorts of rubbish about, you know, what it was and, and people... But also on the other extreme, some people were saying, oh, if you're recognising the constitution, you're going to lose your sovereignty. And it's like, well, hang on. If, our, if we have a First Nations voice enshrined in the constitution and we're choosing our own representatives and speaking strongly on behalf of their own people, then that's sovereignty in practice. And so, so that mm. was the other sort of misinformation. The, the government almost immediately dismissed the Uluru Statement. And so we had no resources, really. We didn't have the money to go and educate even our own mob about what happened, right? What What were the grounds on which they, like, when they dismissed something, did they just go, nah, sorry, or do they have to give, like, a list of reasons? I, mean, this is, I don't understand how politics actually physically works. I can understand basic yeah. political ideas. But, like, tangibly, do they go, no, sorry, we're not even looking at it, or do they have to give these are the reasons why? It was that. Bad. The, the dismissal of the Uru Statement officially was in October 2017. Turnbull was the Prime Minister and it was so bad. The Prime Minister at the time had an Indigenous Advisory Council that he appointed himself. So he handpicked who, you know, what, what black fellas would be on this thing. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're calling for in the Uru Statement. We won't choose our people. But he had one of those and he didn't even consult with them. He didn't even consult with them. We learnt about his official dismissal by media leak. There was no press conference. None of the elders that presented the Uluru Statement to him were consulted. 
not even his own advisory council that he appointed. So it was just a yeah, nah. Yeah, it was like, yeah, nah. You know, he gave some bullshit excuses. Like um, he said, oh, firstly, we don't think the Australian people will support it, but already we had polling that showed that they would. And that was without a campaign or, or leadership from a prime minister. He said that this is inconsistent with the, the way that our democracy works. Again, bullshit, because we're a representative democracy and we're calling for a representative voice, you know, that would be choose through democratic processes. Just and crazy. And change by referendum, as we have previously. You're trying to fit mm. in to yeah. the already existing system. You've done what you can yeah. to fit into it already. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was his reasoning. And the third reason was a third change of things. So even when, you know, almost immediately... Barnaby and him came out with that and we said, hang on, no, 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 you're wrong. Here, have a look at the report, you know, read the earlier statement again. We'll talk to you. Continued to say that even, you know, after all of that. Just complete ignorance. I mean, it, in, in many ways, it says why we need this constitutional voice. Because unless they're forced to, they just don't listen. No. Politicians, right? Absolutely. So ever since that's been dismissed, what is the new path to get to a referendum? Well, we fight like we always do. We don't take no for an answer. You know, another important thing about the Uluru Statement is that when, when people read it, if, if there's time, I can recite it towards the end of this conversation, if you like. Yeah, that'd be I'm great. I'm not off by heart can... after five years. Of course, um, yeah, at the end, yeah. And then we can all hear it at the end. Yeah, cool. The Uluru Statement is addressed to the Australian people, you notice. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not... We've had many statements and petitions. I mentioned the Barunga statement. There was the Larrakia petition to the Queen, the Kalabak petitions. You know, a lot of Australians don't know about these uh, these moments where we've, you know, made these powerful statements and petitions, but uh, they should know about it. But what we learned is that they've been addressed to kings and queens and to parliaments before, and every time those powers that be have, have dismissed these statements and petitions. All of them have called for political representation or a voice. And so with the Uluru Statement, we thought, okay, you guys in power never listen. We're going to write this to the Australian people. Mm-hmm. And we don't care what you say. And so we predicted it right that they would dismiss it, and they did. And so we didn't take no for an answer. You know, I hit the road with the Uluru Statement canvas. People like uh, Teela Reid, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I encourage people to look her up. Uh, we're entry in Wild One lawyer and, and rebellious lawyer. She took on Prime Minister Turnbull on Q&A back, you know, when he was being an arsehole. Um, so always. And, uh, you know, like many of, of, of our people stood up and said, no, no, no. It's not for you to say no to this. It's for the Australian people. And now we're going to go to them. And so we want your support. And, uh, you know, like our latest polling, uh, campaign polling by Crosby Texter shows that almost 60% of Australians say that they would vote yes now in a referendum to enshrine a voice. Imagine what we can do with the resources to run a proper campaign with our rainbows everywhere, you know, all the right information and leadership in Parliament. You know, happy days. So how do you get funding for a campaign big enough to easily win a referendum? Well, this is one of the great importances of unions in this country. For me to take the Uluru Statement canvas to people, I had the full support of my union. They seconded me to the movement. They paid for my travel and accommodation for 18 months and, and continuing to do that. People use their universities, you know, like uh, Professor Megan Davis, U- University of New South Wales, they supported it. And so she 
does her thing. Teela Reed, you know, with the, you know, from just as a, just as a person, you know, chipping mm-hmm. in her own money, putting in her own time. Uh, Arnie Pat Anderson, chairperson of Lowich, uh, she was, you know, which is a, a, a health, Aboriginal health researcher. You know, so we just did what we could with, with anything that we could grab onto, mm-hmm. whether it was from our, our workplaces, our organisations, our own funds, and we've built this campaign to the point where, you know, someone like you with a, a huge following that can make a huge difference in this has invited me <laughs> to pass this on to a lot more people. So that's how we've done it. Yeah, I saw this video of you on Q&A kind of giving ScoMo shit and then some woman being really angry. And I was like, like she was so offended. But she's like, I, that actually offends me. You saying something, what was it about? You said... Yeah, what? so basically it was about Morrison having a go at Albo's, uh, you know, weight loss because he's lost yes. a lot of weight and having a go at him about his, uh, you know, the way he dresses and stuff like that. And, yeah, the discussion was about whether or not that was appropriate, whether or not, you know, it, it resonates with the Australian people when you when you make such personal attacks. And I just said he's a, he's a hypocrite because, you know, the guy is pretending to be a good prime minister. He, he's actually had an empathy coach to yes. pretend well <laughs> to and understand. he doesn't do well at it. He's just, you know, anyway, that's, that's what brought and it about. Wife, and his wife, Jenny, is the only one that seems to get thrown to him and Jenny just as awful as he is. I mean... Uh, Jenny on that, Jenny, on, sorry to go on a tangent, Jenny on that, what was it, was it, it wasn't for 60 minutes or something. Oh, oh, oh yeah, And yeah, they yeah. thought, oh, this will be the thing that'll show that Scott's got a heart. And it was, her, did you watch it? Oh, no, I didn't watch it. It would have been like torture, but. No, um, no don't watch it. <laughs> Not the ukulele part as well. I had to watch it for my yeah. radio show and I was literally yeah. sitting there. I had my notes app up. I had like <laughs> 10 pages. It was painful. Anyway, now it's getting more media attention though. And I feel like I hope that everyone listening goes to the Uluru Statement Instagram and follows. So if we want to get money for more money for a campaign, for a more solid campaign <laughs> to get to a referendum. How can people listening help? Is it just following? Is it writing to local members? What what can happen? Yeah, so I mean, writing to local members is really important. I know it sounds a bit cliche or mm. it's something that people don't normally do even, but um, it's, it is a powerful thing. You know, we are a democracy. You need to drive them mad. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the, the politicians <laughs> need to hear from, from, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Australians saying this is important to us. Mm-hmm. I've got one more question that I want to ask you. Have any politicians stated that they would support this statement? And if so, who should we vote for? If not, what do we do at election time? Okay, that's an important question, of course. Uh, so basically, first, I just want to cover this off. There is support from across the political spectrum, you know, and that's really important to winning a referendum. So there's there's not entrenched opposition from, from either side of politics, basically. There's, of course, there's those far-right people that you'll never convince, you know, the likes of Pauline Hanson. But um, the only party that has committed to a referendum in the next term of government, so the next three years, is Labor. So so they are the ones to vote for if you, you know, if you, if you want to make sure that we get this to a referendum and get there. The Greens support the Uru Statement, but they've got some strange idea that, you know, truth-telling has to come first and treaty-making has to come first. But, uh, you know, as I said, I think most Australians and, and definitely the politicians already know the truth of, you know, what's happened in our past. We don't need to go through a long process to understand that. We just need to put it to the people and get this get this done so that we can speak with a strong voice. So, uh, and the coalitions, they, they've had the last 
five years to do this since the Uluru Statement have done that. Yeah. So I wouldn't vote. Now, I'm not pushing you all to not vote for Liberal, but if you vote for Liberal, I'm personally saying stop listening to my podcast. <laughs> um, as I say, I know it sounds extreme, Thomas, but this is who I am. <laughs> yeah. I literally said, I'm, I'm like, unfollow me. I don't care. If you're voting for Liberal still because <laughs> your parents voted for Liberal, get a grip. Yeah. Do do. Do the ABC vote compass. The world depends on not voting for Liberal right now, right? Please. They've done nothing on climate action. Nothing. No. You know, You've they've the floods. given money to the people that are blowing up, you know, destroying the planet. Get rid of them. Exactly. I spoke at the climate strike, the, the students' climate strike the other day. Jeez, it was powerful, eh? Yeah. I mean, the kids have worked it out. They're like, you know, let's kick this bloke out. Yeah. All the young people, honestly, they know what they're doing. The only ones who don't are the ones that are brainwashed to think that they need to vote for who their parents voted for. But I'm telling you right now, vote for who you actually want to vote for and who actually aligns with your views. If you need some help mm. in doing that, listen to Thomas and me. Or or if you really want to feel like, because people are like, well, I'm not going to, if I listen to you, I'm also getting brainwashed. Fair point. <laughs> so if you really, if you want to know, go and do the ABC Vote Compass. Have you ever done that? Mm. I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I have. Yeah. Like, if you don't know, sometimes you're like, oh, although I always stand up for the same people, but I'm like, you know what? Let's double check this. And every time it's correct. But you do an ABC vote compass. You can go through close to election time. I'll remind you all. But make sure you're voting people who are aligning with the views. So if you want to support the Uluru Statement, write to your local member. Is there, because sometimes these campaigns have like a pre-made letter. Yep, you can like yep. send in. Is there one available that we can link to? Yeah, so on the website, www.fromtheheart.com.au, uh, there's mm-hmm. there's campaign resources that send like letters. Uh, same with a, another campaign website is org. So, you know, similar stuff, all with the same goal. Yeah, so so there is help there to do that sort of thing. There's also books that I've written to learn more about it. Um, yes. Finding the Heart of the Nation is, you know, it's it's 20... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that I interview and it's a narrative style, talk about their country and and their history and and ultimately why they support The Voice. And there's a children's book as well, Finding Our Heart, which is about the honorary statement for kids because kids love to talk about this stuff to their parents and they're important in a campaign. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. If you'd like, could you read us uh, the honorary statement to finish off? Yep. Okay. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention. Coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from Africa. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent island, and possessed it under our own laws of custom. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with their ancestors. This fleet is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? that a people's possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacredly disappears from world history in nearly the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nation. Proportionately, 
We are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliens from their families of unprecedented rights. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis spell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional change to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our own destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk into worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice and tried constitution. Makarada is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarada Commission to supervise the process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth tell about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trip across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. See your statement. Thank you so much, Thomas. You can find Thomas. We'll put all the links to your books in the show notes and to your socials. Thomas Mayer, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation and I'm so glad that we could have it. And yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Eve Sabi. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks, Len. Listener.